normally I'll do a special message uh, on Easter Sunday, and hopefully this will be a special message, but I'm going to stay in series. I don't often do that. We've been in a series in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, which <clears throat> as we have been identifying it, is his primary letter, primary in the sense that we believe it was the first letter that he ever wrote of the 13 that are contained in the New Testament. And Paul had some very important things to say about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to visit with you for a few minutes today on this Easter Sunday, namely the hope of the gospel. The gospel is one of those words that is frequently used in religious circles, Christian circles, uh, but sometimes we use it so much that we let the meaning slip away from us. The word gospel fundamentally is a word that means good news, and most Christian people can identify that aspect of the definition of the meaning of the word gospel. But then if you were to ask them the question, well, good news about what? They, they wouldn't be quite sure how to articulate what it's good news about. And I think that's something that every believer should be able to identify, which is part of the reason why I want to talk about it for a few minutes today, because it is the basis of what we believe as Christian people. The gospel fundamentally is the good news um, that God has done something for us that we are incapable of doing for ourselves. It's the good news that God has acted in a time of brokenness, in a time of desperation. The gospel is the good news that in the face of looming and impending disaster, that God, because of His mercy and grace, indeed because of His everlasting love, has taken steps to stop the potential disaster from happening. And if God doesn't move, we're left without hope in the world. And it's precisely because God has moved, that God has done something, that we're left with hope. The gospel is the good news that God has acted out of a heart of love to deliver people just like you and me, marked by sin, from the bondage of that sin, that God has moved to draw us and to bring us back to a right relationship, an everlasting relationship with himself, and that God has done that fundamentally by his own work in his own way through the sending of his own son, the giving of his own son, the burial of his own son, and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, signifying the very victory that what God has prescripted can actually occur, not through anything that we do, but through what he's done in and through the person of work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's basically a two-minute explanation of the gospel. But it's just very simply the good news that God has come to us when we were incapable of coming and relating to him. And so I want to talk with you a little bit about that from the concept of hope this morning. Because I don't know about you, but man, we're living in a time where I think more than anything else, you, me, our families, our communities, our state, our nation, and our world needs hope more than we need anything else. Man, we need hope <clears throat> that there's got to be something better than what we're experiencing now and what we've been through over the past year. A lot of people promise hope. Politicians will promise hope. Business leaders will promise hope through their products that they're marketing and trying to sell. Uh, community leaders will promise hope. Just grab a hold of our party, grab a hold of our platform, grab a hold of our product, grab a hold of our community initiatives, 
and will provide hope where there is none in your life. But how many times have we bought into that only to find out that it's a fool's errand, only to find out that there's no hope, just one successive disappointment after another? And I'm telling you here this morning on this Easter Sunday, my brothers and my sisters, that hope can only be found in one place, and that is through the cross and empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only place that you're ever going to find it. Not only for encouragement and peace in this world, as the old song says, here below, but for life everlasting in the age to come. I'm going to draw your attention this morning to chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, without a doubt, it's the most important passage in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And some theologians would actually say it may well be the most important single passage that Paul ever makes in the Bible. It's that significant. And that's part of the reason why I've chosen just to camp out here on Easter Sunday for a few minutes this morning. Because it gets, this gets into the heart of what the Christian faith is really all about, what the work of Christ ultimately is all about. You read Paul's letter to the Galatians, I know as many of our regular Hillcrest people have, and one of the things that you notice is Paul's just not a happy camper. He's upset, he's hot under the collar, he kind of says maybe a couple things in the flesh to get people's attention, but the bottom line is he wants people to understand the basis of the gospel, what the good news really is all about. He's been on the outs with some false teachers who came in behind him in the Roman region of South Galatia where Paul and his missionary team had established at least four churches that we know about. And it's to these four churches that the Apostle Paul's writing the letter to the Galatians. Folks have come in behind him and they have adulterated the gospel. They've corrupted the gospel by adding human requirements to the gospel, things that they were teaching you had to do in order to find everlasting life with God. So Paul writes the letter to the Galatians saying, it ain't so, and you guys need to be brought back to the gospel that you heard preached from me that centered squarely not on Christ plus anything else, but on Christ alone as the basis for your salvation. And then with that in mind, he makes this incredibly important statement here in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. The words will be on the screen if you need it. I'm going to read not the entire passage for brevity, but just a few uh, important statements. Galatians 2, 16. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. amen. Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the eternal, abundant, abiding 
everlasting, all-sufficient word of the living God, and let all who agree with it this morning shout amen. amen. Now, this is an important passage of Scripture, and I'm going to tell you why. Because it identifies three very important fundamentals about your life that you need to know. And the first is the revelation that my greatest need is to be justified or accepted by God. Did you know that's the greatest need of your life? Your greatest need, my brother and my sister, is to be accepted by a holy God. And that begs the question, well, if I need to be accepted, you mean to tell me I'm not accepted by God now, the God that created me, the God that gave me life? Well, not if you don't know Jesus. No, you're not accepted by God. In fact, you're spiritually, the Bible says, lost, separated from God, far distant from a holy God. And your greatest need is to be justified. In other words, your greatest need is to have standing in the presence of God so that God accepts you into his presence. That word justified, <clears throat> kind of a sometimes confusing word. Not everybody knows what it means. It's in the Bible over and over and over again. In fact, it's used four times in these seven verses that we've looked at this morning. So without a doubt, it's something that's very important. The simplest way to understand it is just to understand it as a synonym for salvation. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means to be saved. It means to be delivered from your sins. It means to have received forgiveness from God and to be given standing or acceptance eternally, now and forevermore in the presence of God. The word justified or justification or justify is a word that is from the legal realms. It's a, room of the court, uh, it's a word of the courtroom that specifically means to acquit. It means to come under a not guilty verdict. And the reason that justification is such a critical need in your life is precisely because, get this, you come into this world guilty in the presence of a holy God. That's why the greatest need of your life is for God, as eternal and divine judge, to swing a gavel and somehow, some way, declare that you're no longer guilty to acquit you before His holy presence. Now, the reason that you come into this world guilty and the reason that every baby is born guilty in the presence of God is because of an innate condition the Bible calls sin. I mean, coronavirus has been a bad deal, but not everybody around the world. There's, what, seven and a half billion people in the world? Not all of them are going to get coronavirus. Many of you, like me, got coronavirus. My wife got coronavirus. My son got coronavirus. My daughter has not gotten coronavirus. I probably just sealed her fate right there with that statement. <laughs> not everybody's going to get coronavirus. I mean, it's a pandemic, but it's not universal, right? Even though the, you know, the effects are kind of universally felt. But sin is universally applied to every person that's ever born. Everybody comes into this world a sinner. The Bible says that's because of the brokenness of the world that came as a result of the sin of the first man and the first woman. I mean, that's why Genesis 3 is in the Bible. Somebody said one time, and I love this statement, if Genesis 3, which is the, the, the chapter that deals with the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, the very first sin that messed up everything with God, if Genesis 3 is not in the Bible, you don't need the rest of the Bible. Isn't that, isn't that wild? It's because Genesis 3 is in the Bible that Genesis chapter 4 through the end of the book of Revelation is in the Bible. The rest of the Bible is a detail about how God has been working and is working to counteract 
the awful universal effects of sin in the world. So we all come into this world centers that alienates us from the presence of a holy God because what's the primary characteristic of God? Holiness, right? What's the primary characteristic of human beings? Depravity, sin. Well, we got a dilemma. That creates a problem, does it not? Because holiness and, and sin is like that container of oil and vinegar dressing in your refrigerator at home. I mean, it separates, doesn't it? And you got a shaker in there with two different colored liquids in it that just act like they don't want to have anything to do with each other. And it's because they can't. To get them together, you have to shake it up in some way. And even then, that's only a temporary solution, right? So now you need some kind of agent to go in there to cause those two to coalesce. And that's the situation between a holy God and sinful human beings, and it's why we need good news. It's why left without the gospel that centers on the person and work of Christ, we're left with nothing but bad news because all we have to look forward to is death and an eternal separation from a holy God. So sin is the culprit. It affects everybody. Nobody's excluded. Paul will go into great detail in Romans 3 to make that clear. All have sinned, the Bible says. In fact, look beginning in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, I notice the superlative of the language. No, not one, not any, all, every. I mean, just it's, the, the language is just all-encompassing. It doesn't leave anybody out. This, this reminds us how deeply affected the whole world is because of sin. In fact, Paul will use the language there in Romans 3 that we're all Jew and Gentile alike under sin. In other words, under the effects of sin. We're literally smothered by sin. Kind of get the image of being underneath a mattress. In order to rest easy, you need to get on top of the mattress. Things don't go well if you're under the mattress. And yet we're under the mattress of sin. <clears throat> it chokes us. It stifles us. It separates us. And this is the dilemma of all humanity. There is none that does good. So much for the basic goodness of the human heart, right? The world will try to tell you, well, humanity is basically good. No, no, no. Humanity is basically bad. We come into the world self-centered to the core, and it's that self-centeredness that needs to be broken for us to have an eternal connection with God. The Russian poet Turgenev said one time, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. And that's a great statement because while we might do some good things, we cannot be consistently good in our actions and our thoughts. It's impossible because sin corrupts us and all of us know that. And that's what gives us a problem in the presence of God. And if something is not done to correct that, one of these days when this life is over or when Christ comes again, we'll stand in the presence of a holy God. The Bible says that. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We'll give an accounting. God will say, let's rewind the videotape. And if nothing is done about that innate sinful condition, I'm not talking about the acts of sin. Those are just symptoms. 
And so many people try to get right with God by correcting their bad behavior. Well, your bad behavior is not your problem. Any more than the itchy skin or the sore abdomen or the sore joints is the problem for a cancer patient. Those are just the symptoms. You can treat those all day long, but unless you get to the root of the problem, you're going to be left with an eternal problem. Behavior is not your problem. The condition of sin within you in which you were born is the problem. And you are powerless, as am I, to correct that in your own strength. You can't do enough good in order to correct that issue. And as you stand in the presence of God, if it's uncorrected, you'll hear ultimately, according to Jesus, the saddest words of the Bible, depart from me, I never I never knew you. That's right. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that's why the gospel is precisely good news. Even though there's this gap that's created between us and the holy God because of sin, the gospel gives us hope. And it does so because of this magnificent truth, which is the second takeaway from this great passage in the Bible, namely that justification or salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, not personal achievement. Has nothing to do with your best efforts, has nothing to do with your good deeds, <clears throat> has nothing to do with trying to generate kindness or a good heart that manifests itself in the doing of good things. I'm telling you, this critical statement that justification or salvation or this not guilty verdict that we so desperately need in the court of a holy God comes through faith in Christ and not personal achievement is critical to the proper understanding of biblical Christianity. This is what sets biblical Christianity apart from every other world religion. Paul cuts to the chase here in verse 16, which in this most important paragraph in Paul's letter to the Galatians is probably the most important statement in the paragraph. Look at verse 16 again. We know that a person is not justified by what? By works, works of law, religious rules, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, this is so typical of the Apostle Paul, compounding words and phrases on top of one another. He says the same thing there like three times, compounding one on top of another, because he knows that we're kind of hard-headed by nature and we need repetition in order to get it in. Not by works, by faith. Not by works, by faith. Not by works, by faith. Over and over and over again. It's the critical underlying principle of biblical Christianity. If my greatest need is to be justified in the presence of a holy God, accepted by a holy God, how does that happen? Paul answers the question over and over and over again. By faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. Every other world religion on planet earth is on the other side of that great continental divide. Every one of them. They all say, it's dependent on you to work your way to God. Here's what you do. Here's a checklist of five. Here's a checklist of seven. Here's a checklist of 12. Tick the boxes. Keep the religious rules. And the only thing that leads to is frustration after frustration after frustration because you can't consistently keep them. You cannot consistently do them. And the best that does is leave you with a hope-so proposition 
when it comes to the kingdom of God. If it's dependent on you and your good works in order to get God to accept you, how would you ever know that he had? How would you ever possibly know that you'd done enough good? How would you possibly know that you'd crossed the finish line never to go back again? How could you possibly know that you've scored enough points? That you got the shot off before the buzzer? Did y'all see that game last night? That was one of the greatest basketball games I've ever seen in my life. It was tight, neck and neck from the start to the finish. And then that guy heaved it up from half court and the thing went in and they won the ball game, Gonzaga did. I mean, if that's the way salvation goes, how would you ever know the shot went in? This preacher's here to tell you this morning ain't no way to know it. You have no assurance whatsoever. The best you're left with is I hope I'm going to heaven. Last time I checked, this book right here says, you don't have to hope, you can know it. 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I know. And you can know it too because it doesn't have anything to do with what you do. It has everything to do with what God's already done for you. It's not about your achievement in your good works. It's about God's achievement in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's what it's about. All you got to do is accept the gift. How about that? You say it can't be that. All you got to do is accept the gift by faith. By faith. Now you have to understand what faith is and what faith is not. Because what? 70, 75% of the United States of America have asked, pushed against the wall, what's your religious faith? Oh, I'm a Christian. You are not. You're a cultural Christian. You may identify that way, but your life doesn't bear any fruit. No, you, you got to know what faith is and what cultural acceptance is because there's a world of difference between the two. Most people who claim to know Christ only culturally identify with Christ. They may believe up here. Everybody in the room, if you didn't believe that Jesus died and rose again, at least from the neck up, you probably wouldn't be here today. Now, some of you have got a drug problem. You got drugged to church this morning. I get that. <laughs> but most of y'all, yeah, I mean, if pressed to the wall, yeah, I believe it. But that's not biblical faith. It's a story I've told a hundred times. It's, the, it's the, the guy that strung the tight wire across the raging river there at Niagara Falls, and he begins to walk across the tight wire, pushing a wheelbarrow as his balance beam. Crowd gathers. They're excited to see it. They can't believe what they're watching. He goes across, comes back across. The crowd goes nuts. Everybody applauds, uh, applauds and he calms everybody down. He said, now, how many of you all believe that I can do that again? And every hand went up. Only this time, he goes to the first guy that he sees raising his hand. He said, sir, do you believe I can do that again? The guy said, absolutely. Would love to see you do it again. He said, fine. This time, you come and get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> see, anybody can stand way back here and say, I believe. But that's not biblical faith. That's faith from the neck up. <clears throat> faith has to go from the neck down. Now, it has to include the head, but it has to go to the heart. And the only way you know that faith 
has bound your heart? Is it you're the guy or the gal that said, well, I believe it so much, I'm surrendering everything and letting Jesus do the pushing. I'm getting in and turning my life over to God. Who, was it Carrie Underwood that sang the country song, Jesus Take the Wheel? Am I right about that? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Somebody knows it for sure over here this morning. <laughs> oh, it's a country song, but she's right. Because biblical faith releases <clears throat> control of the driver's mechanism and turns it over to the Lord. And so if justification, God's declaration that I'm no longer guilty, is by faith in Jesus, you've got to know what that is, a wholehearted commitment to follow Christ, not just as Savior, but to follow Christ as Lord. Now I'm off the throne of my own life where I've been up to this point and I surrender the throne of my life to the leadership of Jesus Christ. That makes sense? So this is what we're talking about. That's how a person is accepted by God. God has to see Christ at the center of your life because God is holy. I'm unholy, but with Christ in my life, guess what? I now have the righteousness of Christ and that's what gives me standing in the presence of God. That's what brings the oil and the vinegar together. Jesus is the compound agent that enables the oil and the water now to mix. Not only now, but for eternity. All right? So, man, this is just such an important concept that gets to the heart of biblical Christianity. Now we're able to understand what justification is. Justification, here's the definition, Jim Locke definition. Justification is God's gracious act of declaring a sinner righteous based on faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how simple is that? It's God's declaring a believing sinner to be righteous, which is what it takes to have standing and acceptance with God, but not according to the person's works, but according to to their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own thing. It is the gift of God or not your own doing. Well, it's not your own thing either. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can, bo uh, can boast. Be no bragging in heaven about what you did to get there. Heaven would be a pretty lousy place to go to if that were the case. If it were all about what you did for God in order to get to heaven, the first thing you'd be doing once you got there is bragging about what you did to get there. You got no room for boasting about anything except for boasting about Jesus and what he did for you. And so this is what we mean when we talk about justification. It is by faith in Christ plus absolutely nothing, having nothing to do with my efforts whatsoever. And then finally, we got to land the plane this morning. Y'all with me? Amen? Amen? Finally, faith in Jesus leads to a radically new life because Christ is now within you. His presence is now eternally alive in you. Look beginning in verse 19. <clears throat> For through the law I died to the law so that I may live to God I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can I just say this morning, the celebration that we're here on Easter Sunday and all other churches, the celebration that we engage in today is important, not just because we're here to rally around a historical event, though the resurrection is a historical event. The resurrection is personal. We're here to celebrate ultimately what that resurrection means for us individually as people. And Jesus said that. I mean, the night before he died, he told his disciples there in the upper room where they were having the Last Supper in John 14 and 19, yet a little while and you'll see me no more. The world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, Jesus says, you will what? That's right. There's this great possibility now because Jesus will die and live again that we can somehow, in like manner, die and live again. Job asked that question in the book of Job. If a man die, will he live again? Jesus answers the question emphatically. Yes, he can. He may. But only through me. So the resurrection means something for us. The possibility of life beyond the grave, everlasting life. And that's why, see, salvation in one sense is resurrection from the dead. When you're saved, you're raised from the dead. You were dead in sin. Now I meet the Lord. Now Christ is alive in me. I've been raised to new life. Every salvation, just like the life of Christ, involves a death and a resurrection. We often couch salvation exclusively in terms of life. But before there can be a resurrection, there has to first be a death. You have to die. A part of you, anyway, has to die. What part of you dies? The old life that was centered on self. The old life where you were on the throne of your life. The life where you call the shots. Where you determine the outcome. Where you crowned yourself king or queen. That life dies. And now with a vacant throne in your life because that part of you has died, Christ now is enabled to come in and situate himself on the throne of your life in order to lead you, guide you. He breathes new life into you so that you are raised from the dead. And Jesus told Martha at the tomb of Lazarus before he raised him from the dead, this is what I've come to do. I myself am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never what? Never die. That's what Jesus said. Outrageous statement. Unless it's true. And if it's true, then you've got to do business with Jesus in order to live. And that's what Paul is saying here in this great statement. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I that live, it's Christ who lives in me. Paul is admitting when he met the Lord, there was a part of him that died. There was a part of him, literally, he left on the cross with Jesus Christ. That was his old persecutor. And Paul was a bad, I don't know how much y'all know about the Apostle Paul. He was a bad dude. He rounded people up, threw them in prison, killed some of them. All because they didn't believe the way he thought they should believe. And God rescued him from all of that. 
And he realized that when God did it, there was a part of him that died. He was crucified with Christ. That old life, dead and buried, gone forever. Nevertheless, he says, I live. But it's not me that lives anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. And that's what we celebrate today. We celebrate today, brothers and sisters, not, not just that Jesus came out of the tomb, though he did, but we celebrate why Christ came out of the tomb. Why did he come out of the tomb? Because he wants to live within you. He lives forever, but his greatest desire is to live forever in you, changing you and transforming you, giving you a hope and a purpose for living. We call that union with Christ. We become one with Christ in salvation. It's something Paul called in Colossians 1, this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, which is Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. That's where the hope comes from. Not just from a historical Christ raised from the dead, but from a Christ who was raised from the dead to raise you from the dead by moving in and giving you everlasting life. So if you need hope today, that's where you get it. Christ is your hope. Not a politician, not a political party, not a community initiative, not a national set of laws, none of that stuff will provide everlasting hope for what you need the most. Only Jesus can do it. I'm not talking about some distant Christ out billions of miles away, firmly fixed on a throne out in some distant galaxy. I'm talking about the resurrected Christ who longs to move within your life and to live within your life by simple, committed faith. And if you invite him in, he'll give you the power to live no longer for yourself, but the power to know who God is, who you are, where you've come from, why you're here, and what's going to happen when your body dies. Now, let me ask you a question. Has that kind of thing happened to you? I mean, has there been a time in your life where you realized that you were distant and far and separated from God? Has there been a time in your life where you knew that the risen Christ was confronting you right where you were, knocking on the doorway of your heart, asking for you to surrender to Him? Has there been a time in your life when you know that you have laid down your life, you've laid down your arms, and with simple mustard seed size faith you committed your life to Jesus you said yes to Jesus and you trusted him to save you and to give you hope now and for the rest of eternity have you done that in your life it's God's greatest desire for you Easter is not just historical it's personal and the hope of the gospel is that Christ died and rose again and that he did it for you I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ lives in me the life I now live I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me my prayer on this Easter Sunday 
is that that seminal verse becomes your personal testimony.